If you would, remain standing for the reading of God's Word and turn with me to Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 222, so don't go too far. Page 222. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn to the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpath, and the name of other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Praise God for his word. Please be seated. So there are two books in the Bible named after women. Esther. And Ruth. And so over the next at least six weeks, probably more, we will look at the four chapters we find in Ruth, a total of 85 verses. And so this book mentions Ruth 12 times in its four chapters. And although she is not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament, we find her name mentioned again in the New Testament in the very first chapter of Matthew, in a very important spot. More on that later. So the author of Ruth, it's anonymous. Jewish tradition declares that Samuel wrote this book, while others say it was Solomon after his father, King David, passed away. We are uncertain of the author, but this book has not been questioned as far as canicity is concerned. The book of Ruth is God-breathed. So the main character in this book, it's not even Ruth. It is not Ruth. She speaks least often and with only a few words. The main events in this story revolve around Naomi. And the majority of the dialogue comes from Boaz. Ruth is in every scene, though, minus one. And she does bring the story together. But this book is not about Ruth. It is about the Lord. Ruth's name is used 12 times. Yahweh is referenced 18 times in the four chapters. So as we look and walk through this book verse by verse, I want you to notice and look for the Lord at work. Now the date of this book is tricky. It mentions the genealogy of David at the end of chapter 4. So it must be sometime after the rise of David to the throne in 1010 B.C. David reigned from 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. And although this book is only four chapters, it covers about 12 years of history. Now the genre of Ruth, it's historical narrative in the form of a short story. But make no mistake... This is a story of love and kindness, from trial to blessing and from hardship to redemption. 
This story is not just a blessing to read, but as a reader, we can easily think of our own trials as we read the book of Ruth, and hopefully we see God at work in Ruth, and hopefully we pause and say we can see God at work in our own life. The setting of this book is in the days when judges ruled Israel. It was during a great time of disobedience, as well as a famine was sweeping across the land. In the Old Testament, a famine was often understood as a sign that God was displeased with Israel. Leviticus 26, verses 18 through 20, describes punishment from God for disobedience. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. At the time of this book, there was no central authority in Israel. There was a lack of spiritual focus. People were trusting in self. They were not trusting in the Lord. God's word was not the standard of living. Their standard was what they considered to be right in their own eyes. This was a dark time in history, and yet we see God at work. Judges 21-25 explains the context of the entire book of Ruth. You heard this verse earlier. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Indeed, this was said about the Lord's chosen people. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God had chosen them, and they turned away. As God's church here, purchased by the blood of Christ, our authority is God. And our standard by which we are to live by is God's holy word. For us, everyday life, Decisions when we leave here, as we are here, how we feel is not the standard by which we live. To be very sarcastic, our feelings don't matter when it's compared to ultimate truth. We don't live by personal happiness or self seeking pleasure, whether it is our home, our marriage, our parenting. Aging with grace, we look into God's word. As a child, as a student, as a teenager, our behavior, our character, we have God's word. That is our standard. We have a king. He is Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to live this life knowing his word and living by it. If we come to our days and we think, no, I just have to know it, you're missing it all. You have to know God's word and you have to live according to the word of God. It's not just something we utter from our lips and our hearts are far from the Lord. It's something we utter from our lips and our heart is set on pleasing the Lord. The main theme of this book is kindness and redemption. The kindness, the steadfast love, the unfailing love of Yahweh, or his covenant kindness, if you will. In this book, we encounter the Lord who keeps his promises even when his people do not. We find redemption. 
the redemption of Ruth, and the greater story of the Lord who redeems, the path of the coming Messiah, we find this leading down the trail to ushering Christ. Ruth leads us to Jesus Christ. As one author wisely said, if you take Ruth out of the Bible, you miss a very important area of history that points to Christ in the Gospels. We need the book of Ruth. When we learn of the bloodline of Christ, this book is part of the path and the fulfillment of Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. John J. Yeo instructs us concerning the book of Ruth. He says, this book not only touches the heart, but also impresses the mind. Its inspiring, redemptive message makes us think deeply about theological implications. The book of Ruth is one of the most enjoyable yet instructive stories ever written. Just think about that for a second. I have a teenager who loves to read. She reads stories all the time. When I don't know where she is in the house, she's in her bedroom on her couch reading. This has been said to be one of the most enjoyable yet instructive stories ever written. So I encourage you, read through it all in one setting. Then read through it again and notice how many times you see the Lord at work in what he's doing. There are great theological implications for our life that we find in this book. God's kindness, redemption, It's a deep and wide ocean in which we can swim in for a long time. Make this book become part of your daily meditation. But there are many, many other themes that we find in this book. For starters, from emptiness to fullness. Naomi gets emptied in this letter. And later, she is filled by the Lord. From having to losing, from being married with two sons to losing all three, we find emptiness to fullness, but we also find the consequences of sin. Let us not forget that sin has consequences, even in the here and the now. Sin leads to death. We are to follow God's laws for our good. It is a part of our sanctification to follow the law of God. As God's people, we must not do what is right in our own eyes. We must turn the table of perspective and to do what is right in the eyes of God. It's like me. When I get down from this pulpit, it may be 40 minutes. What man says to me is not important. Did I please the Lord? The Lord is great and his love is unfailing, but he hates sin and he hates the sinner, according to Psalm 5, verse 5. The consequences of sin is death. The sinner needs Christ or the wrath of God will remain forever upon that soul. And an unmistakable theme that you see throughout all this, especially knowing the New Testament, is the providence and sovereignty of God. There is so much here about God seeing to his plan in the midst of an unfaithful 
people. His plan for history as well as his plan for his own. God has a great love for his children. You know, God's plan for his own should draw our minds to a promise that we just looked at in Romans, in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. But if you do not belong to the Lord, though you are made in his image, my hope is that you are concerned and terrified as I speak. If you are not in a relationship with the Lord through the Son, Jesus Christ, you do not love God. God has a special love for His own. God works all things out for good for those who love Him, who are His. If you are not His, all things do not work out for your good. Sin has consequences and you need Jesus Christ. Turn to Him and be saved. In this fallen world in which we live, in the lives of sinners as well as saints, in the midst of His children sinning, God is at work and He is orchestrating His perfect will. When the darkness seems to not lift, do not think for a moment that God has departed. He is at work. And just looking at these five verses, you think, oh my goodness, everything has gone completely wrong. It hasn't. God's at work. He has a great love for his children. When the darkness seems to not lift, do not think for a moment that God has departed. Through flood or famine, death or difficulty, through your unfaithfulness, the unfaithfulness of others, whatever the storm is, whatever sins you are presently struggling with, God is at work because you're His. When your sin is a heavy burden as a Christian, know that Christ has extended an invitation to you. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hymn writer William Coper famously wrote in 1773 the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I think it's appropriate as we look at Ruth. Listen to these words that he says. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides His smiling face. We're to trust Him at all times in our lives. In this book, we find God at work. Even though on the surface it seems like God is not doing anything, and even when we look at our own lives and we think, I don't think God is doing much right now, let me just give you a word of encouragement. Even when you see God at work in your own life, He's doing much more than you see. In this book, we find God at work, and we find His people at work as well. Do not dismiss the work of God in Ruth and do not dismiss the work of God in your own life. God was at work in this book and he is at work in your life if you are his. But as his child, we also need to respond and work for him, for his glory. Not for justification, but for his glory. We're to trust God's sovereign hand and praise him for his good and his perfect work. 
Even in difficult times, we need to remember behind a frowning providence hides a smiling face of God. Seeing the sovereignty of God, recognizing His providence, that in and of itself is a divine grace, a privilege in which we are to capitalize on by living to glorify Him. If you see God work in your life, praise Him for it. Talk about it. Look at it this way. God uses little family of Amaliac and Naomi and preparing a nation for King David in which King David set the stone and moved it forward in order for Christ to come. God was at work. There is nothing at all happening in your life right now that God is not orchestrating. And as his child, everything is for your good and his glory. Absolutely everything. The Lord doesn't leave anything to chance. He's ruling over all things. He's able to make every single promise because he's going to see to the fulfillment of his promises. In the spiritual as well as the natural or general things of this life, God is at work. Do the work to see the sovereignty and providence of God in this book as well as in your own life. Faithful living, that is also a theme that we see. I mean, Ruth opens up in a time of great unfaithfulness among God's people. They were doing what is right in their own eyes. Many would say that's what we see a lot in this world today. Walking away from the Word of God. And we see obvious struggling. And yet in this book, we find faithful characters serving the Lord. Isn't that the same all throughout history? We see God's church continuing. The light's never put out. God's people living for Him in a great time of distress or famine or war or poverty, whatever it is, God's kingdom marches on. Praise the Lord for the faithful living you see in Ruth as well as from what you see in your own life, your family and this church. You also see virtuous womanhood and strong manhood. In the most difficult of circumstances, you find women and men standing on what is right in the eyes of God. You find God's kindness, His steadfast love, that has resulted in His children being kind. It's not just, God has been kind to me. They're responding with saying, God has been kind to me. I'm going to be kind to others for the glory of God. We find both men and women who are spiritually strong. And then the obvious theme is redemption. When the setting of a book is everyone did what is right in their own eyes, the outcome can seem bleak, but it's not. When all seems lost, we need to remember that God is at work. When death comes, God is still on His throne. Boaz plays the role of a kinsman redeemer in marrying Ruth, revealing the Lord's kindness. In brief, a kinsman redeemer is a near adult male blood relative who serves as an advocate for any family member to redeem property, person, or lineage by monetary payment. So when people do what is right in their own eyes, God is still building his kingdom and keeping his promises. And the greatest promise that he is keeping through Ruth is I'm going to provide a savior. He is coming. 
So our faithfulness to God as his children in a culture of wickedness is not insignificant. This might be a small church, but we serve a great God. And he is doing his work here. Now there's one special literary feature in Ruth that is worth mentioning. We find the words to return 12 times. Four chapters, to return, we find 12 times. These words reveal a physical return from one place to another, but these words also signal a return to the Lord, a spiritual renewal or revival, if you will. You find in the setting of Ruth, God's chosen people focus on self for the most part, but there are souls serving him. God is at work. God is bringing redemption, making way for his son to come, the coming of King Jesus. There is a beautiful picture of spiritual renewal in this book. So how does Ruth mesh with the rest of the Bible? That's a great question. I could not have thought of a better question for you all to ask. The book of Ruth anticipates the coming of a king to the throne of Israel, King David. Through the bloodline of David will come the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This book is a true historical account of the Lord keeping his promise and working in history for the glory and the good of his children. But before we look at verse 1, it's important for us to see the Lord in this book all throughout the book, every single chapter. In this short historical story, we need to remember that God is orchestrating all things. Twists and turns in Ruth do not take God by surprise, just like our own life. God is orchestrating it all. This book should cause us as God's children to stop and gaze at our own life for self-examination and to see how God is working even now. It would be extremely helpful for us to ask ourselves the following questions. Number one, am I seeing God's hand in my life? Am I seeing God's hand in my life right now? Number two, am I being faithful to the Lord with how I'm living? Am I meeting with him? Am I praying to him? Am I abiding in his word? Am I holding his scripture, what he has said in my heart? Am I keeping his commands? Am I being faithful to the Lord? Do I trust the Lord in hardships as much as I do when everything is going just hunky-dory? When I am in pain, when I am suffering, when I am struggling, when I am sinning, am I trusting the Lord in those times of hardships? Remember, sometimes the furnace has got to get really hot so the Lord can fashion what he wants because he knows exactly what we must go through to conform us into the image of his son. How do I respond in times of difficulty when it seems the Lord is not at work, but he is? Another question that we'll see, especially in this first chapter with Naomi, are my eyes only fixed on things that aren't going my way? Or am I thankful to the Lord for his steadfast love? Am I so focused on, Lord, look what everything in my life is just going completely wrong. This is horrible. Or am I seeing the steadfast love in everything? Everything. 
Perspective matters. How we think, it matters. Am I remaining faithful in reminding myself of the promises of God? Am I remembering that God is ruling over all things and that He knows what is best? He always has and He always will. All right, Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn to the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Emiliac, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the opening words of this short story, it grabs you completely. If it doesn't, then you've been twisted and warped into something that is completely entertainment, but this is great. We need to understand these opening words really well because it sets a stage for all that is to come. As I stated earlier in the Old Testament, a famine was often understood as a sign that God was displeased with his people. The setting, there was a famine in God's land. People were hungry and they were in great need in Bethlehem. There was a lack of spiritual focus. People were ignoring the Lord, and God removes his blessing of food. And what happens? Do they seek him? And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. It's interesting, Bethlehem means house of bread, and there is literally no bread. Because there is a famine in the land. So a man who lived in Bethlehem had a choice to make, do I stay or do I go? Do I stay in the house of bread where there is no bread, or do I get my wife and two sons and head to the country of Moab? So let's hit pause for a second. Did not God promise that his land would be a land flowing with milk and honey? I mean, Exodus 3, verse 8, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to as a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. We must keep some Old Testament promises in mind as we read Ruth. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. And if you faithfully obey the Lord, the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. So the Lord promised blessing for obedience. The issue was not that God failed in keeping His promises. Amen? The people were not obeying the Lord. They were not concerned about the eyes of God. They did what they wanted to based upon their own eyes. Brother and sister, that's a dangerous spot to be in. When you become the authority for your own life, you better watch out. They were self-focused. They were suppressors of the truth, Romans 1 would say. They were living lives that did not please the Lord. The Lord promised blessing for obedience, but what about disobedience? Well, you keep reading. Deuteronomy 28. If you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. 
Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. So blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. Sin has consequences. So the house of bread has no bread. And a man decides to take his wife and his two sons and sojourn to the country of Moab. That is, he decides to dwell for a time in Moab. Now, we must look at the country of Moab for a moment. Moab was a place full of wicked people. The book of Numbers informs us that the Moabites sent Balaam to prophesy destruction upon Israel before they entered the promised land, and God confronted Balaam. The Moabites also led God's people to worship false gods. Numbers 25, verses 1-3, through 3, when Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with their daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. For a man who lived in Bethlehem to pick up his family and move to Moab, it seems disobedient. God's people should have repented at the removal of food and resources, but we, but we find this man fleeing with his family. We don't find any mention of people mourning over their sin or people turning to the Lord. Look at verse 2 from Ruth 1. The name of the man was Limelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Emiliach means God is my king. That's, his, that's what his name means. Naomi means sweet, pleasant, or delightful. So this family, a well-established and well-off family from the city of Ephratat, later renamed Bethlehem, Emiliac does not seem to live up to his name. The author does not tell us, but it seems that instead of serving God in the land that God provided for them, he flees to a foreign and wicked land. He desired to provide for his family. I mean, that's what I would want to do. You're, I want my family to have food. I want my family to survive. But it seems that he did it his way. But God was at work, and his perfect plan was unfolding. They arrive in this new land, and they remained, or they settled there. If you look at verse 3, Miliak, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So now it's just Naomi and her two sons in a foreign land. Interesting enough, Malon's name means to be sick. Kilion means failing or destruction. If you're not seeing the sovereign and providence of God, you're missing a lot. So Malon and Kilion, they take Moabite women as their wives, Orpah and Ruth. How does this play into the commands of God? Deuteronomy 7. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, 
Hittites, Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when Yahweh your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. So Amelia dies. It seems his sons intermarry, ignoring the commands of God. Now, although the Moabites were not mentioned by name in Deuteronomy 7, it aligns with the spirit of the law and was discouraged because they served false gods. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy, when you get to Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 4, it states, No Ammonites or Moabite may enter the assembly of Yahweh. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of Yahweh forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Again, the author doesn't say, but the two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Now, Orpah means gazelle. Ruth means friendship. So after 10 years of marriage, both Malon and Kilion die. So think about this from Naomi. 10 years, you lose your husband, you lose your two sons, and their two wives are left barren with no children, and you're alone in the land. Naomi is emptied in a very sad state at the end of verse 5. But thankfully, this is not the end of the story. We will learn more about this story beginning next week. But I really want you to think right now about your personal relationship with the Lord. As the Lord brought judgment on his people in this story, You don't see repentance of a family, but you see a fleeing of a family. So my question for you is, are you faithfully serving the Lord right now? Is God's word your standard of living? Are you following the commandments of God, or are you doing what is right in your own eyes? You can see how that turns out. Before the Lord... Are you coming before the Lord daily, confessing your sins, turning away from your sins, and asking him to forgive you? In times of emptiness, are you remaining faithful to the Lord? Maybe you have Romans 8.28 memorized, but is it a promise that you are trusting in? And we know that for those who love God, all things... All things work together for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you believe that God has a good plan and purpose for all that he does? Naomi was in an extremely dark spot. Perhaps this is you right now. Are you trusting the Lord? In your suffering, don't stray away from the Lord. Keep pressing into the Lord. Go to him and find rest. You are weary, you're exhausted, you're tired. Go to the Lord. The Lord provides for his own. His love is never ending. He is kind. He has covenant kindness with his children. He is present and he is at work. 
Every hardship he uses for our good and his glory, I believe that. I believe God's word teaches that. That every hardship he uses, every tear, every area of suffering, he uses it for our good and his glory. Remember this as you are struggling and praise him because he is a God who is at work. He is always at work. He loves his children. Next week, we'll learn more about the character of these three women. But do not forget, God was at work then, and he is still at work today. This story prepares the way of the coming of Christ. Christ has come, and Christ has paid for the sins of those who trust in him for salvation. Christ is coming back to judge the world. The question is, as we talked about in Sunday school, kind of, is are you ready? Christ is returning. Are you ready? We're we're talking about preparation for Christ coming in Ruth. The question is, Christ has already come. Are you ready for his return? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation? Not just something that runs off of your lips and you can say, all my children can say that with their lips. Probably yours as well. The question is, is it something that's actually true in here? Have you actually done it? Is your heart close to the Lord because you are his? Christ is coming back to judge the world. If the answer to the question is no, you have not repented of your sins and put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, if that answer is no, you are not in good standing with God right now. You're without a Savior, and you are found dead in your sins, and God's wrath abides on you at this moment. You are not in a good spot. But everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You are encouraged in Scripture to repent. You are commanded to repent and to believe in Christ alone for your salvation. My prayer is that this introduction to Ruth would really and honestly spur you on to read the four chapters, to dive into. It's a beautiful love story. You see not only things in your own life, but you see the love of God in caring for you even now. You see his sovereignty and his providence. You see the fact that we, of everything that we have in Christ our Savior, you see the unfolding of his perfect plan. You get so caught up in what God is doing that you don't care what the rest of the world is doing. You're just concerned about pleasing him with your life, and that's where we need to be as God's children. Not lost in translation with the things of this world, focus on what the world is doing, or so worried and concerned about, I wonder what God is doing. No, we're so concerned and, and overwhelmed with the glory of God that we're living for him, not caring what the world will do to us. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the book of Ruth. An amazing historical true story of Lord, how you moved in history, how you kept going and keeping your promises when your people were not obeying you. They were doing what is right in their own eyes, and Lord, we identify with that. We do so much today what is right according to our own eyes. We abandon what you have said. We decide to sin before we sin. We we choose to fill our own plates and our own 
pleasures with self versus the glory of God. And we are so thankful that we have an advocate that we can go to. We can go to your son. And your word informs us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The fact that you save sinners and that you know that we will still continue to sin, that is an amazing covenant kindness of your steadfast love. Lord, as we understand more and more about the book of Ruth, help us to understand more and more about you. Because this book is about you. Who you are. What you're doing. How you've moved. How you're going to move. That you are a promise keeper. That you are a God who is always faithful. You are a God who is always at work. Lord, we need to keep these things in our mind as we live this life. As we are walking through the trails and the pilgrimage as we are going down difficult hardships, as we are in the midst of great, great revival, whatever is happening, Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Lord, those who are not your children this morning, Lord, put a heavy concern and conviction that can only be brought about by your Holy Spirit and cause them to struggle and to be concerned about their salvation and call them to repentance and belief. Lord, give us eyes in which we have eyes that are focused upon glorifying you in all things. And whatever we do, take away little by little the things in this life in which we are just doing what is right in our own eyes, not even concerned or thinking about you. Lord, would you do this? Would you conform us more into the image of your Son in such great numbers in this church for your name and for your glory? We ask you to do this, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.